Hi, this is bass player Nathan East, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Malcolm Bruce, the son of Jack Bruce from Cream, the world's first supergroup that consisted of Jack, together with Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker. They changed the face of rock music completely when they exploded onto the scene in 1966, and I was there, and I can attest to this. Jack Bruce was one of the greatest singers, songwriters, bassists, and cellists of the rock era. He was my first hero on the bass. Unfortunately, Jack left us much too soon. Malcolm Bruce is now behind the release of Heavenly Cream, an acoustic tribute to Cream, it's a new album with new versions of so many of the iconic songs by that great band. It was put together, as I understand it, over a period of years, and it features, among others, Pete Brown, the lyricist who co-wrote so many hits with Jack, Ginger Baker of Cream, who unfortunately is also not with us right now, Paul Rogers of Free, and Joe Bonamassa, guitarist extraordinaire and in the middle of this episode as i do with all my musician guests malcolm and i are going to do what i call a song fest we're going to play a handful of some of the songs from that album and you'll get to hear a little bit of it and we'll talk about it you'll get the backstories and nobody else does this in podcasts you also know that in every episode i like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end and i always try to make that song relevant somehow and in this instance it was easy it's my reimagined version of one of cream's hits i'm so glad this is the live version that was recorded at a festival that i played at in serbia and that's on the recently released album it's alive by my band project Grand slam so, Malcolm Bruce, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. Oh, you bet. You know, listen, your father inspired a whole generation of musicians. I was just one out of millions. How does that make you feel? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm very proud of my dad. Absolutely uh, proud of his achievements. But he was also just my dad, you know, so... Uh, it's hard to explain. It's all really subjective, the whole thing. <laughs> Did he bring you down to some of the rehearsals and stuff like that? Or were you too young? Or what's the story there? Well, I wasn't born during the cream era. I was born a little after that. That would make it difficult, wouldn't it? Well, you know, <laughs> I was there in, in, in spirit. I was probably already there. You know, let's put it like that. But um, no, I, I think from the get-go, I was involved. I was around everybody that he was working with and I think by osmosis naturally 
that's rubbed off somehow. <laughs> oh, it had to. I mean, but he was an extraordinary musician. There was just something, you know, he was the leader of that band, as I understand it. And I understand why everybody says that. It was basically his songs, his singing, his everything. And his bass playing was just remarkable. Did he start out playing the bass or was he a cellist to begin with? Well, I think he was actually a singer. I would say that he was a boy soprano first, like very, very early on. He was singing in choirs. Like, I mean, like a lot of us did when we were kids in school, we'd start singing. But I think he was taking it quite seriously from an early age. And you kind of hear that in his voice because he sort of developed a sort of a wrong, I don't know, from classical terminology, maybe like the bel canto style of singing. So you can, I can kind of pick up on that sort of early formative experience that he had as a singer. But then very quickly, he was playing the cello, playing the bass, but he also played the piano. Um, again, it's that, I think that's one of the things that made my father different to other musicians playing in the blues or playing in rock, what, what became rock, that he had this extensive classical background. And I mean, I, I have that too. So on a daily basis, I'm practicing Bach and studying music, I'm writing classical stuff, and but I still love to rock out. And, and I love the blues and I love jazz and because I don't see those limitations in music. And I think my father was the same. You know, the industry likes to say, oh, you can't do that. That's you're stepping over. How are we supposed to sell that? You know, but that's the industry. And and I think that's why, in some ways, my father, you know, people that understand who he was and, and how important he was as an artist, they like yourself. And I'm very grateful for you saying that. But I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily understand that because the industry likes sort of to pigeonhole people. And my dad hated all of that. Although he loved the blues, you know, if you if you were to ask him, he would say, yes, the blues is the most powerful primal force. But the blues is also like a classical form of music. And it's also something that's, it's like in classical music, you take a, a motif, you take a cell of a few notes, and then you turn it upside down, or you elongate it or contract it. And in improvisation, we're doing that too. And even in what you might term a simple kind of improvisation based on the blues idiom, harmonically simple, you're still taking those basic parts of music and you're stretching them or or whatever and that i think that's the basic thing the building blocks of music and how conscious can we be of that process even in improvisation i totally agree with you and that's exactly what your father did i mean you know before cream everything was kind of the two minute the three minute song it was the single it was all set nothing wrong with that but when cream came out and they took, as you said, a melody and then expanded and turned it around and stretched it and did all these fabulous things. And they were listening to one another. That's the extraordinary part, because so much of you know rock music, bass and the drums just kind of lays down a beat. The soloist is going on and on and on. But what they did in Cream was they turned the beat, the music, everything around because they listened to one another. And you can hear it in so much of Jack's lines on the bass. He was responding to what Eric was doing on the guitar. He was responding to what Ginger was doing. And they were responding to him. That's what made them an extraordinary band, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a spiritual thing, isn't it? It's I mean, it, that word's a loaded word, but in the sense of 
how do we commune with each other? How do we, what are these social forces? How do we, do we, should we be greedy and narcissistic or should we be more democratic or should we be thinking of others or only thinking of ourselves or whatever? And I think, I think you're right in, there is a magic to the number three in terms of interaction somehow that three allows enough space and, you know, a trio, a rock trio, it allows each person to have, it's not the bass playing under the guitar and I'm the lead guitarist and you're just the bass player, <laughs> you know, and I've, I've been in bands where people have talked like that because they don't understand this basic premise of the equality. And, and I think especially that number three, it, there's a sonic space, uh, you know, even if the bass is going up into the higher registers, there's still that equality of expression and the ability to hear everything that's going on, every single note, every single phrase, whatever. So yes, I think Cream was unique in that respect. I'm not sure if it's ever really been explored properly since then in the same way. I don't know. Well, in part, it's because they were extraordinary musicians, okay? You just can't take three people and put them up there and just have that kind of interaction yeah. or presence. Those guys were fantastic musicians. And again, it, it, it's very jazz-oriented. My background was that I came of age musically during the whole British invasion era. Again, those two th or three-minute pop songs. And then... You know, it's Cream came out in 66 to 68. That just blew my mind. Hendrix was doing his thing at that time. And then I got into the whole jazz fusion era, which, of course, was a whole nother type of improvisation. But it was it all came for me out of what your dad did in Cream. You know, and people have said to me afterwards along the way, you know, what you play, how you play the bass, it's reminiscent of Jack Bruce. And I take that as a gigantic compliment because he was just magnificent. Yeah, no, he has, uh, he he discovered something and it, and I think it was not overthought. It was very much in the moment. And I think, again, that's, I always go back to that, having played Cream's music off and on quite a lot over the last few years, especially with Ginger's son, Kofi, in a few bands. And, you know, it's that thing of when you let go into the moment, you can kind of discover something rather than how oh, I've got to play it the same every time. It's got to be all figured out and, and good. When you actually let go and just maybe it's going to be different every time. Maybe you play that inflection slightly differently or maybe you go in a completely different direction. And I think, again, that's the magic of that music. But I'm sure that that was also happening as you say, in jazz, obviously, that's the, the basic premise of jazz, but it was jazz. So it was perhaps less accessible at that time. It was too obscure by that point. But then I, you know, you're talking about jazz fusion, you know, only like a year later, my dad joined Tony Williams, John McLaughlin, Larry Young, and they all thought, we're going to be rock stars because, because uh, I suppose they were we like, got oh, Jack we Bruce with us. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, obviously my dad, I mean, some, they actually, I don't know whether you saw, but recently there's a, a thing called Beat Club, which was in Germany, I think. And they recently released some small excerpts of Lifetime, this band playing on this TV show. And it just shows, because there's so little footage of them, but it just shows how amazing they were. But that's the thing. They thought, oh, Jack Bruce has just had a 
you know, huge pop career, but with being a real musician. So I'm Tony Williams. I just left Miles Davis's band wearing a suit and a tie, but now I'm going to be a rock star. And it just sort of didn't translate. I guess maybe it did a few years later with Chick Corea to some degree and Ma Vishnu and all of that. But but I'm not sure how far, you know, it's still jazz. But again, labels. Ah, Listen, you're correct that jazz, unfortunately, is not as accessible to so many people as rock music was. Your dad was one of those few musicians that was able to kind of go back and forth between genres like jazz and like rock. And that's one of the things that made him great. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about you and your background. You started out and what instrument did you start playing? Um, I started playing the piano at the age of around five, which I still play. I'm playing all the time. I'm writing stuff for the piano. I'm hoping to make a jazz record next year. It's been a long time coming, but I feel like I'm starting to get there with what I really want to say uh, um, on that instrument. Um, so, yes, around the age of five, I started having lessons with a classical teacher. Now, who pushed you into that? Was that self-started kind of thing or was it your your mother or your your family? I think it was a, it, there's a tradition, certainly in the UK, but I'm, I'm sure in America too, but certainly in Europe, there was a tradition that to learn an instrument was a part of being a child, you know, and I think that's so important. I think it's an essential, I think sometimes we're losing touch with that, but I think that it was a natural thing. And obviously by my dad, well, both my parents being musical, my mom also co-wrote two songs for Cream. She wrote uh, Sweet Wine. Sleepy time time. I'm a sleepy time baby. A sleepy time boy. Work only maybe. Life is a joy. We'll have a sleepy time time. She wrote co-wrote with us all. But she had played piano as a child. Um, and sung and I think it was just a natural thing so I don't think it was a sense of pushing it was just hey our kids are going to learn an instrument hey if they hate it they can go play football or soccer or whatever but it was a, a natural thing at the age of five then by the age of eight or nine I was starting to write to notate music you know learning to write notes down um, and then I started playing the bass I think I picked up the bass guitar because they were just lying around our house and then around the age of 10 i think my dad got me my first electric guitar so though and oh and then i started learning the violin when i was about 11 i did that for about seven years well listen speaking of having a bass guitar lying around the house it was because of your dad who played a gibson bass guitar that i went out and got my first guitar which was of course the same one I had to get the same one as Jack Bruce. So was it an EBO or EB3? I think it was an EB3. 
but you know it had that distinctive look and it had the you know the the coloring and you, you had to do that that was the jack bruce bass come on i wasn't going to get the paul mccartney bass. i you wanted to, to get the jack bruce marshal. bass don't you have to play it through a marshall and turn it up to 11 i'm not sure that's exactly <laughs> right all right so you started out you've been a musician for quite some time let's kind of lead into this album which is really quite a spectacular album i have listened to it heavenly cream an acoustic tribute to the band how did this come about well i think we have pete brown to thank for the whole thing and pete sadly passed away a few months ago here in the uk but pete um i mean he had an amazing life he he, he was in his 80s you know he lived his life on his own terms incredible success uh, started off as a a beat poet uh, in the very early, late 50s, very early 60s, uh, when Allen Ginsberg came over, there's a famous concert they did together. So he was like a British beat poet, really, and and came out of that. And then I believe it was Ginger that he first met, but I could be wrong, but I think it was Ginger he first met. And so from that point, Graham Bond and uh, my dad and onwards. So, you know, he had an incredible career. So he was talking to the A&R guy at this label about a, a documentary that had been made about him and, and cutting a deal to release the documentary about Pete's life um, that is, I believe, going to come out at some point. And uh, so while talking to the guy at the label, they just decided, they sort of said, well, why don't we make a record as well? So I think that's how it started. Um, and at that point, Pete contacted me about getting involved, um, contacted Rob Cass, who is the producer on the project. And then from there, we just started bringing people in. Mark Waters, who's who shot uh, a making of documentary that's coming out uh, at the same time as the record. And uh, Bernie Marsden got involved and this person and that person. So it was great. That's fantastic. But, you know, go back for a second, because your Pete Brown and your father were a combo. You know, they were the Bert and Al David of <laughs> psychedelic music back in the 1960s. And, I mean, I always thought that Pete Brown's lyrics were, let's call them unique, okay? A lot of people did not understand those lyrics, but they went perfectly with your father's music. And, you know, what's your impression of the whole thing? How did that all sit together for you? Well, like a lot of um, incredible creative relationships, they had their ups and downs on a personal level. They fell out a number of times over whatever it would have been, 50, 65 years or whatever they were working together. But they had something in the same way that Lennon and McCartney had something. Or, as you say, you know, Burt Bacharach and Hal David, you know, all these kind of duo partnerships. I mean... Elton and Bernie Taupin you know there's some great examples of that and I think Pete and Jack had something very special and I wrote I ended up writing I've got a record coming out next year and I've got three songs on that record that are co-writes with Pete uh, mm -hmm. and so I I uh, over 15 20 years or whatever that I've been working with him we wrote about 20 25 songs so I kind of got a, a little window into into how Pete worked, you know, so I could take Pete a title and a melody and maybe a couple of lines here or there. And he would go, right, okay. And he, he just, in a very workmanlike way, he'd be able to just something that would take me, you know, painstakingly sort of six weeks to sort of sweat over. He'd just kind of get it done in a couple of hours Knock because out, huh? he had that sort of ability and he had an intuitive, I would call it an intuitive 
uncannily intuitive ability to pick up on what you wanted to say and, and find a way to say it and just effortlessly and say it in an incredibly, usually with a lot of humor, uh, a lot of insight, and it, and it also that skill of simplicity, you know, uh, that great writers have. You know, there's no, there's no fluff. You know, it's just bang. Tell me this. Was it the music first or the lyrics first? Okay, was it like Bernie Taupin giving Elton John the lyrics and he writes the music? How did they work together, your father and Pete Brennan? I think probably the majority of the time it was my dad taking a song to Pete and, and Pete writing lyrics to a melody, and then a back and forth going through syllables, maybe dropping things here and there or adding things here and there. But I think my dad would come up with a musical idea, essentially. Um, but having said that, I mean, the very, as I said before, my mum wrote uh, Sleepy Time Time, and that was the very first song ever written for Cream. Uh -huh. And I, as far as I remember, I'll have to check with my mum, but as far as I remember her telling me the story, Basically, she wrote a lyric and she gave it to my dad and he said, it's a blues. It's, it's a beautiful kind of blues. But she just sort of goes, went here. I wrote some words and he said, OK, thanks. And then she went to a rehearsal and turned up at one of their first rehearsals and they sort of looked at each other and they played the song for her. And um, well, as you know, it, it can work. These things can you can sit down with an instrument and come up with everything at the same time. You can write poetry and then set it to music or you can write some music and then try and fit the words into the melody which I've I'm always doing that but I always find it really difficult I think the words first is is more the convention and it probably works better it's quicker anyway that's interesting you say that because actually I do it exactly the same as you I write the music and then I try and figure out what words I want to put to that music and how long does it take <laughs> well it does take a while of course and you have to get the the syntax correct and all of that but I have always admired people that can take somebody else's lyrics and just kind of come up with the right melody that goes along with it Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music. And keep on rocking. So let's go into this song fest portion because this leads perfectly and i'm playing now the new version of sunshine of your love which has got the most iconic bass part that was ever created in rock music that your father came up with 
Well, I'm curious. Did Pete Brown come up with the lyrics for that and your father fit the bass part into it? Or was it the other way around? Tell me how that one happened. I wish I could tell you. <laughs> I wish I could tell you. Guys, if you're listening in heaven. That's right. You... Please give us an answer, will uh, you? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I would imagine, that, you know, the famous story is, so my mom and dad lived in, um, was it Greta Garbo's old house or somebody? Okay, in, in West London. Northwest London in a place called Bracknell Gardens, they had a, a flat, I think. Uh, so an apartment on the second floor. And I've seen pictures of it. I wasn't born, obviously. But um, there's pictures of a window or two windows. And uh, Bob Adcock, who uh, was my dad's roadie during or tour manager during the cream days, he posted a photo recently on Facebook. And he said, that window was the window that Pete Brown stood at as the dawn was coming up. And, you know, the line is, it's getting near dawn when lights close their tired eyes. So according to that version, Pete was think, trying to figure out something. I know Pete and Jack had talked about it in interviews over the years. And I think they were struggling to come up with it. And they'd been up all night working and the sun was coming up and Pete came up with that first line. I'm not sure about the rest, but... But anyway, I think from a romanticized point of view, that kind of makes sense to me. <laughs> it's a lovely story in any event, I'll tell you that. <laughs> All right. And you got Ginger to play drums on this version, which I thought was just the greatest touch. Tell us how that happened. Because he was kind of an ornery guy, wasn't he? He was um, publicly, and he was as a... I mean, I'm saying this to a lot of people recently because obviously he passed away and I didn't know Ginger well, but we got on, you see, we got on really well by email. He was polite and, and you know, very well spoken and intelligent. Sure, he was answering the emails? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was. I think he was because of the language that was used. But And there were times when I was much younger that I hung out with him a couple of times um, when he was really nice, really, really sort of present. He, you know, uh, clean living. Uh, there was a time when I was a teenager and I was in Southern California and he was living there with his then wife, Karen, and he was in such great shape. He was in very positive and he was absolutely adorable and lovely. That was with his son, Kofi. We kind of spent an afternoon with him when we were recording some stuff at a studio and he was just a joy to be around. But then there were other times where he just would put up this kind of, as you say, ornery. I like that word. Um, he would put up a front and he'd be sort of gruff or, uh, yes, all, all those uh, all those words we can think of. But I think a lot of that was just protection, you know, protection because he was jaded. You know, he was an ex-drug addict. You know, all of the stresses and strains and the self-destruction, but also the incredible will that he had the incredible strength he had as a person and as a creative person and all the things he'd done but i think it was just this whole lifetime of stuff and it was just much easier for him to kind of go Whoosh, i'm not going to connect um but having said that I, as i say i wasn't a super close person to him and i know that Pete, some other people that were would would say yes he was a genuinely lovely person so i choose to think of it like that good I'm glad to hear that. And and yes, he came in. We asked him to come in, and he came in on two separate occasions. Um, and he came in with his friend Abbas Dodu, who's a wonderful percussionist who lives in the UK from Ghana originally, 
and they were friends. Um, so we came in and we had Pee Wee Ellis as well from James Brown's band. Um, Pee Wee was also playing with Ginger. So he had, he came in with a group of friends, you know, and I think that made him feel comfortable. And uh, he came in to play with Joe Bonamassa on this track, Sunshine of Your Love. Um, and I think that was a nice little kick for him as well. You know, this was like the last recording that Ginger ever did, I believe, um, because his health was starting to fail. But I think it's a nice round off, you know, to Joe, obviously the level of success that Joe's had to do something with Ginger and for Ginger to do something with Joe. It was a kind of nice thing. Oh, yeah. It was a, it was a really nice combo. I was just curious as I was listening to it, I was wondering whether Ginger had to be kind of pushed into doing that song again, because that was such a defining song of his career and his life. Or did he kind of say to himself at this point, 50 years plus on, it's kind of cool to redo that number? What do you think? Well, he didn't vocalize it. I mean, I, I what I can say is that at the end of the session, he was in, we were at Abbey Road, and he was in one of the booths just kind of ch chilling out with his uh, drum tech. And he asked specifically, can I talk to Pete Brown? And so they spent 10 or 15 minutes just on their own talking. And, you know, all that history that had happened, um, and, you know, obviously, like 40 years ago, Ginger was blaming my dad and Pete for taking all the royalties, all the all the talking, the white all the stuff, all the stuff. But then they spent this time, just the two of them talking. And afterwards, Pete said, yeah, it was really amazing. It was like a healing experience. Um, so, you know, he wasn't vocalizing about the specific song. We did two or three takes for each song. That was more than enough. I mean, the guy's a master, an absolute master at the instrument. So, so it was a joy. That's absolutely true. All right, I want to go to the next one. This is a song, it's probably not one of the most well-known songs by your dad, but it's one of my favorites. I'm talking about Theme for an Imaginary Western. It was done by Mountain, by Felix Papillardi. And I have a small little vignette I'll just mention to you. Back in the day, I was on college radio. And who did I interview? I interviewed Felix Papillardi, who was a bass player and the producer of Disraeli Gears, which was the Cream's second album, which was the one that had Sunshine of Your Love. It was just a monster album. And I remember... In talking to Felix Papillardi, who's also passed on, unfortunately, I said, what was it like when you finished that album, Disraeli Gears? I said, did you know that that was going to be a hit? And he said, one of the most thrilling moments of his life is when he held the master of that album in his hands. And he says, I knew I had a number one record in my hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, Felix and his wife, Gail, I mean, you know the story. They were good friends with both my parents. And um, and then actually I had a band for a little while with uh, Leslie West and Corky Lang about uh, in around 2009, we did some shows together. So I kind of got to hang out with them and I love both those guys. Uh, crazy, crazy, but I love them. Um, 
great musicians, iconic in their own way. I mean, Leslie's not with us anymore. So I, I've, I experienced a little bit of that. And yes, the mountain tune, the mountain version of, of theme for Imagine Western is wonderful and probably a, a lot better known, I guess, in the States than my dad's version, which is on his first solo album. And the reason, obviously, Pete co-wrote it with my dad, but one of the reasons we felt it was okay to, we kind of snuck it in on a Cream tribute record was that they actually made a demo of it for Cream, but then it was rejected as being too outside what they were doing. So there is a demo floating around somewhere of a kind of Cream version of Theme for Imaginary Western in a demo studio somewhere it's i think they might have even released it i'm not sure and there's another great song called hey now princess on the same demo session that never made it to cream but my dad recorded it and played it subsequently all right well one song you left off the album that i was hoping i was going to find was i think it was the first single put out by the band anyone for tennis That's a great song. Although I love that song, but it's a little incongruous. To, to it's kind of it's on the face of it, it's quite throwaway. It's got a recorder part on it, like a yes. actual recorder, recorder. But it's wonderful. But yes, I, I mean, there's a um, a very early people didn't really make music videos in those days in the same way that everyone makes a music video these days. But there is a music video of them play miming the song and it's funny because they all look so annoyed you know they're like why are we doing this we hate this you know it's not proper music but of course now 60 years later or whatever we're thinking wow that's incredible it's so psychedelic like, what drugs did they take to write that but they're kind of like Whoa. and i think my dad's playing and singing out of time on purpose or whatever <laughs> it's one of those things so, but it's brilliant i love it you're talking to a fellow musician here. So I like that deep catalog stuff. And that was just one of my favorite singles that they ever did. All right, let's go to the last one we're going to play here. Uh, and I chose this intentionally. I'm talking about Born Under a Bad Sign. Hard luck and trouble has been my only friend. I've been on my own ever since I was 10. I've been down since I began to crawl. If it weren't for bad luck, oh, I wouldn't have no luck at all. Because what Cream did was to take American blues and turn it around like so many other English artists did and then give it back to the United States and the world. And that's what they did with this song. And you had Paul Rogers of Free that was singing it on this album. So the whole thing, when you put it together, is just magnificent. Tell me a little bit about that one. Well, obviously, it's a great, I mean, all of those, as you say, 
those blues standards, I suppose we could call them that, you know, Spoonful, you mentioned the Skip James song, I'm So Glad, which actually, I was on X, formerly Twitter last night, and somebody was posting about Eric uh, performing that song. And there was a little anecdote about Skip James at the time saying, you know, being really pleased that Cream had covered that song and saying, well, that's gonna, that song will have a life. And I think he's right. I think in some ways that's what Cream did. They took those incredible songs and they breathed new life into them and they took them in a different direction. And, you know, so I guess a lot of those songs, Crossroads, all of those songs had different, Crossroads wasn't Crossroads, it was Crossroad Blues, I think. And there were two versions that Robert Johnson did, apparently. I Don't quote me on that, but I think there were two versions, one released locally and then one released slightly later but it was a completely different vibe to what cream did and especially what eric did which was much more of a like a riffing straight ahead type thing right you know and i think again with born under a bad sign i mean it's if you listen to the original it's albert king right yes well albert king did a recording i think it was 1967 right but the song actually went back much further than that out and it was kind of a conglomeration of different songs and then, of course, Cream did it in 68, so took it to another level. Like Sitting on Top of the World, which is, I think, one of the great songs of, well, forget genre-specific, I think it's just an incredible song. The lyric, it's so deep. The uh, the form of the song, it's incredible. And I think that goes back to 1926 or something like that. I mean, yes. some of these songs go back to the 20s and the 30s. So, yeah, Born on a Bad Sign, similar thing. And... I just love the way Cream did it. I love the way Ginger swings the beat at the beginning of the song, how he comes in. It's like just so many beautiful, clever things going on. I'm not sure how well thought out it was. It was just all felt. And then, you know, being around my dad for my whole life, I, I saw and heard him play it in so many bands and so many different configurations of musicians. And it was always, you know, from, I don't know, from uh, Gary Husband and Blue Saraceno on guitar or or to Gary Moore uh, Gary and Moore, Ch- right? with BBM and, you know, and Gary Moore, obviously incredible uh, musician. And all those guys, I mean, everybody that my dad worked with. So, so it's a... These songs are incredible because they're so organic. And it means that if they're done well, the the personality is able to shine through of the performer. It's not about the song. The song is just a vehicle for somebody, for that true personality to come through. And so it can be unique every time it's performed. And, and you know, having someone like Paul Rogers, he's great, man. I mean, he's... He's a wonderful guy. And, uh, and he practices the same meditation that I do, apparently. So... So there you go. That makes it perfect. <laughs> I have to say, one of the great things that Cream did was they introduced this whole body of blues work to an audience that had never heard it before. All, all the kids like myself in the United States and probably around the world, they didn't know these songs because they were all kind of beaten down 
not promoted, not played on the radio. And they took these songs and they made them their own, but they they did two things. They introduced them to the world and they got some money for the guys that wrote the songs. Yes, and Cream, uh, my dad was especially good at that. I mean, I, I have to say, like, I, my mom does have a letter somewhere from somebody. I will have to check who it was, but somebody's wife of thanking them for making sure that they got paid royalties. And yeah, I mean, as you say, that there's a huge racism element to to the past, you know, and in in business and especially the music business and the film industry. I mean, you only have to look at someone like Orson Welles, you know, how he was treated when he went down to South America and God forbid filmed uh, black people and white people dancing together, uh, you know, and and they kind of burnt the rushes when he sent them back to Hollywood. I mean, we're talking about the 40s, but but um, but in the music business, there were these tears and we still there's still the infrastructure, all of that stuff, like black and white, different genres that are race based or whatever. It's kind of weird for me. Maybe the UK racism is a slightly different thing. Maybe we are slightly have slightly more integration. Like I grew up with people of all, you know, I'm not saying I claim to understand racism in the same way that a black person would, but but I've kind of always just grew up around lots of different people. So I never thought about it in the same way. Whereas I guess 50 years ago, it must have been a whole different thing, you know. Well, music in America became a melting pot much sooner than it became politically or socially a melting pot. And it was one of the great things about growing up as I did coming of age in the 1960s. There was just so much music from so many sources, black, white, didn't make a difference. Just wonderful. Yeah. All right. Before we finish this, I have to just mention that my favorite live rock song of all time is Cream's version of Crossroads on Wheels of Fire. I'm not blazing any paths when I say this, but <laughs> what what the guys did in that song, the way it was captured, I think it was back out in San Francisco. They did a bunch of shows, and this happened to be one of the shows. But again, the interaction between the three of them was just so magnificent. It took the song into so many different places. And it wasn't the song, it was it was the performance. I just mm -hmm. had to say it because uh, how else am I when else am I going to say something <laughs> like that? Yeah. So anyway, listen, I have really enjoyed this. I want to thank you. We've been speaking here to Malcolm Bruce. This is Jack Bruce's son, but he's a great musician on his own. And he's now the head of an album that's just coming out called Heavenly Cream, an acoustic tribute to Cream. It's a wonderful album. And Malcolm, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. And now we're going to listen to that song that I started out the episode with. It's my version of one of Cream's greatest hits. It's called I'm So Glad. This was recorded live in concert. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. 
Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.